The Social, Psycho, Confabulation, with Ben, and, Mr. A. So pets. You have some pets. Oh, yeah, I got a lot of pets. Right? Yeah, you should tell us about your pets. I mean, right now it's not too bad. Right now we just have the two dogs and... Two dogs? Yeah, I thought you Fry. only had one. We oh. had to uh, save that one from its right life mm-hmm. of neglect. And hopefully no one listens to this that knows me because they'll take that personally. But it's not personal. It's just uh, <laughs> priorities, people. Priorities. Well, the neglect didn't... Uh... Your stepmom, like, well, okay, look, the dog sucks, <laughs> all right? It pisses everywhere. Now, a dog that pisses everywhere and sucks, sucks because of the owner's sucking. That's just the way it is. All dogs that I've ever come across are trainable. A lot of my dogs end up with a fairly similar temperament. I realize different dogs have different personalities. I've met a lot of poodles, for example. They all seem really. They can be like speedy, like run away, kind of crazy, but they can also be, they're, they have an interesting, I could tell, you know, like I, like you meet a poodle, you're like that's a poodle vibe. Anyway, hmm. this little one was, is now older and very tiny. So he's hard to keep an eye on, you know, he doesn't, he's not making a lot of noise when he does piss on the stuff in your house. It's not a lot of piss. It's just a little piss <laughs> and you might take like a whole day to, before you even notice it. It's very annoying. It's like having a cat, you know, that doesn't use the litter box all the time. We also have one of those. And it's equally sneaky and annoying. Can he just not control his bladder? No, he's dumb. And he's not trained. I think there's multiple facets. I think probably smaller bladder needs to go out more. But he doesn't tell you because he wasn't trained. He just wanders off and you're like where's that dog but you couldn't eat you never heard him wander off because he he weighs I, I think i weighed him yesterday like less than five pounds i think oh like God. it's so tiny we're talking like lighter than a bag of sugar so anyway <laughs> he sucks but he's so freaking cute but he just sucks I'm not, I don't remember why I was telling so many details about him in particular, but he's here. It's a problem. We love him. And you've got a little dog, a a big dog too. Yeah. And my point, I think one lingering point to take away from that is you can train the dogs. It's harder to train a little tiny dog. I've also had a chihuahua Mm. one time. They're a little, a little tricky to like, to train. And I think literally i i actually believe that 50 percent of that trouble is because they're so stinking cute that you have a hard time not just like not caring like so when one of my dogs jumps on me it'll like liable to like give you a laceration and knock you to the floor possibly knock over some furniture when fry jumps on you obsessively he can jump on you with all the energy and force in his body and it's literally like a little tiny beanie baby just going (laughs) just jumping up and down up and down like crazy and like jumping scratching you and smacking you and he'll like attack your foot but it's like he could literally be trying to kill you and i don't even know if he could break the skin so it's difficult to even try to train a dog like that so in a reality they're very wild in a way he's kind of just crazy sometimes but he's so small you can't tell (laughs) that's really Mm. what it comes down to 
So that's why they're a lot of times very yappy and barky, you know. Anyway, that's a personal philosophy. Then we have, uh, like I said, the one pissing house cat, which we rescued one year. Look, we had so many stray cats over here. This is just story time, people. Listen up. We had so many stray cats over here after this lady next door died and somebody bought her property and nobody moved in. They're going to develop it. So it just kind of sat vacant with like multiple little shelters. And I went in there one time after she had died. It'd been like a year and there was like a bunch of dead cats, like dead kittens that got abandoned in there on the couch. Oh my God. That's sad. They were mostly just skeletons. It looked Whoa. like they were like cats that melted into the couch. It was very weird. In fact, I didn't know what it was until I kind of inspected it. So, wait. But there were... She had just left cats. She had a bunch of cats when she was alive. She died. She and had a she few died. cats. And, but there was also a couple stray cats. But I think then what happened was the stray cats, the one or two or three or however many there were, started multiplying. They had a big house to live in. I mean, it looks like they died... And there was a kid and he like she died and he just walked out the front door, you know, like there's left there. So there was probably like food and stuff behind. There's like literally a bunch of litter boxes that still look like they could even be used like big, huge ones. It's weird. Anyway, over the past year, hmm. we had to capture. They won't always do this. It's weird. But the Humane Society out here in theory and in practice, because they did do this, they gave us some like cages and they were like, we had a lot of stray cats. And they were like, start, you can catch them, you know, bring them in. There's like, you go and do so many or something. I don't even remember what the deal was. But we started bringing them cats. And they, they finally, they just like got on board. They were like, yeah, whatever you got going on is a problem. Because we brought them in one year, over 20 cats. And just like, I mean, I say a year, I mean like a season. Like we just went, okay, it's time to get this under control. And mm. we just started putting cages out there for a few months. And over like a month or maybe two months, cut 20 cats, took them to the main society. They spayed or neutered them. They cut their ear so you to like signal that they have been spayed or neutered. They like cut a chip into their ear or a, uh, like the like tip a little of piece the ear off. Of it. Hmm. Yeah, like the they took the point away so it has one dull ear so that you can just I'll always identify them because they let you they you take we took back and released these cats because there's like they were like we don't know what to do either <laughs> I mean it's 20 cats just like one after another we bring them like five or six or seven at a time oh wow it's wild I don't know what they were doing with all those I mean they must have just been working with us for that time but yeah so a lot of those guys are still left over so we've got other cats that just won't leave. They just hang out outside all the time. They're just standing on the back porch. I walk out there. They yell at me. They're just <laughs> always there. Then we have two special cats <clears throat> that we've trapped onto the screened-in back porch because they're like part of the strays that got fixed, but they're crazy. Like one of them's got like a cleft palate, a cleft face. The other one has like toes that are fused together and claws that are upside down on the paw, and it seems like it's a little cross-eyed, maybe like. They're just weird. We can't let them go because we know immediately they'll be just like found dead. Mm. So I don't know if those are pets. I'm just kind of like, here's food. So yeah, but ours, the cats, the dogs, two cats are inside, unfortunately, and the millions that are outside that we sort of kind of let live. And then 
the chickens. I don't know how many chickens we have now. Somewhere between 10 and 20, but not 10 and not 20. Hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, that's about it. A little fish tank. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, that's interesting because that's uh, that's what I want to talk about. I'm interested in pets, at least uh, generally, because everybody has them. You know, they're ubiquitous and people have done a lot of talking and thinking about all this. Uh, like there's literally documentaries on dogs and cats, so many. And I guess like I was listening to you just now and I thought it was kind of interesting because I wonder if it's even a good thing that we have all these pets. You know, for instance, like the woman who died and then the cats, you know, dying when she was gone, that seems like a, a bad thing. And then having to, you know, neuter all the cats and that are in the wild. Well, in her defense, they may have been born, a litter born after she died. And then for some reason abandoned there, either the cat got killed in the street because we live on a fairly busy street, surprisingly. But also, there's 20 freaking cats all over this property. And who knows the kind of competition and stuff that was going on. Because, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, it's like it was like we lived in like a Hey Arnold or something. Just I don't know why I said that. Like we lived in like just like literally you hear the like alley cat screech like. I mean, just fights and stuff constantly. You see you just see two black shadows just fumbling and darting across the backyard like all the time. Interesting. Well, yeah, I guess I just mean in general the the idea that they can't really live without humans very well. Um, that seems like one negative consequence. And then also, well, like, maybe, yeah. What do you think? Do you think about. they can? Well, that was a lot of cats. I mean, they almost over were like over thriving. It's like almost it was just because they were the, too many. I, you know what? I think that thing that made it get out of control. To be honest, if I thought about it. It was probably everybody else's fault, not the cats. I think what was happening is entire litters were surviving, which is probably pretty rare. For So a litter of cats can be anywhere from like three to, I don't know, like 10. I mean, you could have a lot of cats come out. And I think all of them are living. I think that's why, how come it all of a sudden was like, we're just going to start catching cats this month and just see if we can get rid of some of these or stop the population growth. And then... We didn't even know there was 20 cats. You know what I mean? Just We just kept catching them, like cat, 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 cat. And I know that like grandma down the road was feeding them. Whenever they'd be around over there, you know, I'd like see like just random shit out in the yard, like whether it be pizzas or oatmeal mm, so people or are cat feeding food them. even. Yeah, and then I think the people across the street kind of feed a couple. She seems picky about which one she feeds. I know that Kim feeds them, <laughs> like we'll feed them from time <laughs> to time because – they're so close to everybody and other people are doing it that they're almost domesticated. They're fairly tame at least, you know, they'll like, they just sit at my, sometimes if they're, if it's bad enough or they're hungry enough, they'll just sit at our back porch and just meow. Like they're gonna like, Hey, Hey, anyone home, anyone home? Like they're looking for the people. Hmm. So, and it's, and, and those won't even let you catch them. I mean, they kind of will, like if you really spend some time with them, but they're, they're basically wild. They just know that like, if they just yell at your door. Well, do you think they could live outside of human society? Like if those people hadn't been around and feeding them, do you think they could live outside? I do because I think that there's something more like if you're going to like compare a dog and a cat, I think that the cat, and I don't mean this in any 
subjective way. I almost mean this in an objective way as far as like measurements and what a good animal is. Cats are way more badass than dogs. So like a dog is like, I've heard people say like a, a dog is like a wolf that never stops being a puppy kind of basically like it's, it's like infantilized almost. Where, so mm-hmm. it's like an infantilized wolf or something. And then I believe a cat is just like a panther, but miniature. It's not like a baby panther. It's just like a small one because they'll fuck you up. Interesting. You know, like I had one bite the shit out of me and I was fucked up. I was like, man, if two cats got on me, I might die. Like they might be able to kill me. They don't know. They probably wouldn't know. And I could probably do some damage if I got my hands on one and just slammed it on the ground or something extreme. But that thing could latch on, man. And they can kill, they kill shit in the yard all day long. I've watched these ones oh, that are wild yeah, out here. Yeah. I mean, they hunt everything. They hunt birds, moles, rats, mice, uh, large crickets. I've seen them catch bugs. Like they're just little survivors and they've, their claws are always super sharp. They're super sneaky. They're super, they're just like, they're very apex in a way. Hmm. Yeah, I guess they do more hunting than dogs. Way more. Like in the like. population, I think of them would stay, I think around people because they're cute and they're a little, they, they can be kind of scavengery, which is maybe like a domesticated t- like aspect, but same way bears will, like bears will just find your trash, you know, but they're not like tame. They're just like opportunist a little bit. Mm. And I think the cats are a little bit as well. And I think, I don't think you'd get like these dense populations like this because I've noticed Man, I have way too much interaction with animals. I'm noticing this right now because I have no training in this. I'm just telling you. <laughs> You're like Dr. Doolittle. I'm just telling you personal information here, and I've been here for a minute. But like, um, I've noticed that the more we feed the cats that are outside. Now, this just sounds simple, but it's a little bit more complicated. The more we feed the cats outside, the more cats are around. The more cats come around. And that seems obvious, but it's not because these cats get kind of territorial and they'll run each other off. So like if you like feed them more for a little while and then feed them less for a little while, I've figured out that abundance makes them a little more peaceful. They don't have to like chase every Mm. cat off, you know? So like a more will be in a smaller area because the competition's kind of not that big because like everyone's probably going to get something to eat, you know? Right. You don't have to fight off all the cats. Yeah. And if you forget a few, man, it doesn't take long. It seems like you forget a few times and things get like hairy for them out there and stuff gets a little violent. It's interesting. Yeah. Like maybe the fighting is wasted energy when you don't need to do it. Yeah. So take some cats and drop them in the woods and like take a hundred cats and drop them on like a hundred acres of whatever. I don't know, wherever they want to live, woods or field, whatever. I think that they'll spread out. But I think that, man, I, I bet the survival rate of a year is at least 50%, probably more. Mm. Now I'd say fi- at least 50%. It's got to be because they're just so proficient. They're such good killers. Well, that's interesting. But so what part of that is probably domesticated a little bit like naturally. So like everyone knows the story of the red wolf, you know, like all dogs are red or just as soon as the red wolf. And there was this like... Is it Red Wolf or Grey Wolf? I think it's a Red Wolf. I don't know the difference. Because I don't even know... Yeah, I think it's the Red Wolf. But it doesn't really matter because I think even recently they did this experiment. I think it's like these Russian guys or something. Like they... Wherever it was, it was pretty freaking cold. I remember the dogs were in cages. I feel like I remember it being like not America. I could be wrong. 
but it was, I think it was still nevertheless a well-known kind of study where they took these dogs or they, I know they weren't dogs or some other kind of wolf and they, it's a wolf or a coyote of some kind. And they, and they would put them in the cages and they would test them by like putting their hand out or whatever and seeing like which ones attacked and which ones like basically just rating the aggression scale. And then they would selectively breed the least aggressive and then they would, of that litter, do the same experiment. And I think it took one, I don't know how you measure a generation. It was like one and a half. It was like, I think it was by either one or two litters through that selective process. The actual physical characteristics of the coyotes changed. And they mm. got, the things that they got were like very dog-like. So they, I think one of the, couple of the first features, other than obviously the personality being nicer and nicer, was that they got fluffy tails and floppy ears. Oh, that's interesting. Because that's what uh, yeah people talk about. I looked up a little bit about this. I also learned that dogs, uh, the ones we have today, developed eyebrow muscles. That's something that wolves don't have. And so the idea is that that helps them communicate more with humans. They can express a broader range of emotions. Um, yeah, I mean, dogs for sure, if out of any animal or any observation in nature at all, in my opinion, like even beyond, like I almost feel like Darwin could have just come up with his whole theory based on dogs. Yeah. If they had known if he, I mean, cause like that experiment of just like breeding a few generations and being like, Holy crap, like these things we're breeding for personality and we're getting physical traits. So there's like so much genetic information there that can be expressed and I don't even know what I think about evolution, but as far as natural selection goes, it's like kind of almost obvious. Like there's so much in there. And then mix, yeah. you pair that with that Russian experiment or whatever that experiment was with those dogs in those cages, those coyote things. I'm like, that's pretty crazy. Like that's pretty weird because the, the fat one will kill you and the other one will follow you around and lick your face. Yeah. No, the changes happen fast. I mean, that's, a really starting thing and it's interesting that you bring up darwin because that's he actually used that as uh in his origin of species book he talks about domestication of animals i was gonna say surely and, he knew about domestication of and for breeding for traits and, and that kind of thing right yeah human selection um and he sort of uses that as evidence in the way that you were just describing he's like i mean look at how quickly we can change plants and animals like the characteristics of them uh and it doesn't take long. And so he's like, when you think about nature selecting for things, it's not so crazy to think how much change could happen over a long period of time if we're seeing, you know, pretty profound changes in just a short period of time. But I, I wanted to read this quote, actually, from him. <laughs> I know we, we said we wouldn't do this, but I thought it was pretty good because he has a really interesting attitude toward domestication. So this is from his Origin of Species. Um, he says, as man can produce and certainly has produced a great result by his methodical and unconscious means of selection, what may not nature affect? Man can act only on external and visible characteristics. Nature cares nothing for appearances, except insofar as they may be used to any being, useful to any being. She can act on every internal organ and every shade of constitutional difference on the whole machinery of life. Man selects only for his own good, nature, 
only for that of the being which she tends. Every selected character is fully exercised by her, and the being is placed under well-suited conditions of life. Man keeps the natives of many climates in the same country. He seldom exercises each selected character in some peculiar and fitting manner. He feeds a long and a short-beaked pigeon on the same food. He does not exercise a long-backed or long-legged quadruped in any particular manner. He exposes sheep with long and short wool to the same climate. He does not allow the most vigorous males to struggle for the females. He does not rigidly destroy all inferior animals, but protects during each varying season, as far as lies in his power, all his productions. He often begins his selection by some half-monstrous form, or at least by some modification prominent enough to catch his eye, or to be plainly useful to him. Under nature, the slightest difference of structure or constitution may well turn the nicely balanced scale in the struggle for life and so be preserved. How fleeting are the wishes and efforts of man, how short his time, and consequently how poor his products be, compared with those accumulated by nature during whole geological periods. Can we wonder, then, that nature's productions should be truer in character than man's productions, that they should be infinitely better adapted to the most complex conditions of life, and should plainly bear the stamp of far higher worksmanship? So that's the end of the quote. Isn't that interesting? Well, I was trying to figure this out while you were reading that. I wasn't listening. I'm just kidding. Um, here, I found this. I was trying to figure the, get the answer to the question on whether or not Darwin himself was an atheist. Well, he does say in The Origin of Species, he says something like, I don't see why this book would be a shock to anyone with strong religious convictions or something like that. And he he makes a lot of allusions to nature and god and whatnot so he seems sort of spiritual i don't know if he's well, uh, i found here religious. on wikipedia from some work i think titled darwin so i don't think i don't know if that was from his work but also another work i guess called darwin correspondence project what did darwin believe that's their site here but it says though he thought of religion as a tribal survival strategy darwin still believed that god was the ultimate lawgiver and later recollected that at the time he was convinced of the existence of God as a first cause and deserved to be called a theist. This view subsequently fluctuated, and he continued to explore uh, conscientious doubts without forming fixed opinions on certain religious matters. Yeah, so I think my interpretation of what I understand is I think he believed in God or some higher power, nature. It's like there's a lot of meaning and selection going on in nature for some higher purpose and man is kind of inferior to that i mean at, ver at the bare minimum what he was saying was like a long way of saying humans you humans select all the time for traits that meet whatever requirements you want met right and and then he points out all the variation of nature and how adapted and adaptable these spe you know different species are so my, you know, my, my origin of species thesis, you know, is supported by this fact. And this is observable, so observable in nature. If you're challenging me, then you have to admit to me why exactly you're doing the exact same thing you say nature isn't doing, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So definitely evidence for his theory. And then, yeah, too, I think it kind of points to the limitation of man. Like, we can't... Well, he said we really... do weird stuff. He's like, you put a long right. hair sheep in the hot sun, you idiots. Well, not he's not saying you idiots, but he's just saying, like, you're not doing that because it's, like, the best 
thing for the sheep or whatever, you know, you're doing that because you need wool. Right, right. Which I think is something interesting about pets uh, in general is that they become and they are today uh, dependent on humans. And I think that's one of their you know, defining features. I mean, that's what I think domestication means in general is that the animal becomes adapted to a human way of life as opposed to uh, a wild way of life, so to speak. And I think that's it creates an interesting relationship between us and the animal because it sort of strips the animal of its autonomy and self-determination in some sense. And I think as a consequence, we really love pets. We take care of them. They're kind of like children, like babies. They're, they don't have any autonomy. And I think we're also very forgiving with them, like with babies. Like babies can't really do any wrong because they don't have any agency really. And I think we treat pets in the same way where people are really forgiving of their pets in a way that they aren't forgiving with people. There's even like studies on that. We'll let them shit on our bed and then we don't fucking kill them. Yeah, that's nice of us. Right, right. Which is kind of weird. And then too, the so to the Darwin uh, quote, he talks about how we select for these things that are appealing to the eye or whatever. And I guess my personal experience of seeing some dogs in particular is really sad. Like recently I had this experience where I was out at a food truck and there were lots of people out. It was sort of like open air seating and it was a taco truck and a coffee truck. And, uh, you know, people had their dogs and whatnot. And there was this one particular dog that had this, I don't know what the breed, but it had this really arched back and short fur and really narrow face. And it was long greyhound. It might've been, but it was very small. It was like a miniature version yeah, they of have that. Those. And I just, it really struck me how odd it looked. Like it really caught my eye because it was such a strange looking dog. And I was like, its proportions were just so perplexing to me because its rib cage was so large in the front. And then it like, it sloped way up in the back. And then it had this tiny little torso right before its hind legs. And I just thought, wow, like that cannot be good for that dog i wonder if it's in pain like chronic pain and i think that about well pugs a are lot the, of animals the classic sometimes. example the pug dogs because they have the yeah. shortened snout and it's a lot of times difficult for them to, to breathe and whatnot so they say right and like bulldogs like they die really quickly because they have a lot of health conditions and like wiener dogs uh you know they have really stubby legs and long torsos and it's bad for their backs because they're, you know, especially if they get fat because it'll like literally make their, you know, body sag and pull their spine out of alignment. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of stuff like that that makes me sad. Um, and I don't want to bash <laughs> on pets because I know so many people love pets and I've had pets that I've loved. Um, but I'm like, I know that we should be doing this when I see stuff like that. Well, one one fact for sure is that you interact with way more domesticated animals than you do natural state animals. And so you mm. don't, so there are plenty of horrors that happen in nature, like dying immediately, infant death, mother abandonment, mother's death, competition, food shortage, or food shortage, food scarcity, you know, just a lot of non-survival predation. One may say as well that that's pretty horrific too, you know, especially in the case of like, the kitten that we brought in that's my, you know quote unquote my cat which is kind of a wild crazy lady <laughs> but it, we brought her in because it was that was a night that was going to get super duper cold there was a whole little pack of these things 
don't know where the mother was. I think that's why they were all just kind of out there by our front porch, just like yelling because it was freezing cold. And I think they, I don't know, I'm using the word they know or they knew, you know, lightly, but they, you know, generally would hide from something and not try to draw so much attention to themselves. But I think it was getting really cold and they were all out there just like, you know, and this one that got saved was the one that just kind of walked up and I could grab in the dark, you know, without much effort. And I was like, well, whatever, you kind of come right up to me and try to get up here. I'm going to just let you come inside and get out of the cold. Like the friendliest one. Yeah. I mean, that was just, I mean, so in a way my behavior was also nature. It's just part of human nature to do kind of interesting things and be a little bit more manipulative upon the world and manipulate our environment so much. But lots of things do that, but we manipulate the environment a lot, including manipulating other species. And in a sense, you might even say that that some, some may say that actually I was being manipulated by the little cute little cry and the fluffy little tail and the little eyes that are too big for the cat because it's so tiny. And Hmm. you know what I mean? So I just like a little monkey man just walked out of my front porch and was like swoop and just grabbed one that came right up to me and just walked back in and said, here, come out of the cold, I guess. And then it just never left because it was a cold spell and stayed in for a while. And then we've done Hmm. it for other cats too. You know, every now and then we're in Georgia, but every now and then it gets really, really cold. And there's a cat right now that's inside that has like 20% of its fur missing. It's kind of like a bloody mess. I don't know if there's something wrong with it, but it's like too nice. So it'll like, without any thought, just walk right up to the dog and try to lay in the dog's lap. It walks right up to like random cats that haven't been around here before and he'll just get smacked in the face. I mean, so during the cold, we're like, fine, come in, dude. Like, just chill for a second. Yeah, well, it's like, that's the trade-off there. It's like they become nicer, which, you know, makes them more favorable to cohabitation with humans and being cared for by humans, but it also makes them less able to defend themselves and But it's a trade-off wild. that's, you know, yeah. happening, and it's happening naturally, you know, as much for me as it is for them. You know, like, are am I manipulating the environment, or are they manipulating their environment by coming up to me and finding the personality trait or the courage or whatever it is to hang around just a little bit closer because naturally mm-hmm. those are the ones that are going to get cared for and i i'm kind of just pointing out like what are the consequences of nature like natural consequences and why aren't kind of like human behaviors perhaps considered as forgivable as the ways of nature basically because maybe it is kind of like nature. And, you know, one more step is how much, literally, like how much is the cat manipulating me to pick it up and bring it inside? Why did it walk up to me like that? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I reacted to something and I didn't make the cat, manifest the cat. That was external to me and, you know, quote unquote, tried to get me to do something. And I reacted, you know what I mean? So it's like, in a sense, yeah. that's very natural. Because if, now, again, another story everybody knows, the domestication of animals or of the common house pet, the common house dog. Essentially, that began by human settlements and then these wolves that would kind of get close-ish enough to get to their uh, waste piles, you know, where carcasses were thrown or, you know, just... The human waste piles. Yeah, stuff that was available for these dogs. And essentially, over time, the ones that got... They are willing to get the closest to the people were the ones that really embarked on the journey of, of the lineage of, of the house pet. And there was a mutual benefit. I think the story goes probably something along the lines that we p- humans began to recognize a benefit of actually having these wolves around. These wolves around that were nice enough 
to them not to kill them. And, you know, that their presence was enough to maybe ward off other other kinds of threats. I can't I don't remember exactly what the Right. Yeah, I think I looked this up. I think so some of the dates are like this goes back forty thousand years. I know, or it's something. it's hard to say. They're telling a story that there's no way they had yeah, any access to sure. real information on. But it makes it makes sense because it's right. very reason, it's almost happening yeah. right out in my backyard right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I think people point out is like what you were saying is the the dogs would help with hunting and they also eventually yeah, down the, the line to dangers right. by barking and, and whether we, yeah, and, stuff and like whether that. that story's right or wrong, we it to some extent it is right because there are literally dogs that can help hunt that are really, really good at it. Like we've clearly that's has happened over time. That is definitely part of the story. And some that are no good at it. You know? Right, right. So Yeah. I mean, there's literally dogs that it's like in their genes, like pointers. You know why those are called pointers? Or pinchers? Pointers? pointers? Because they because oh. they point like almost naturally. It's like something they do. They'll like lift a leg up and they'll put their nose in the direction of something that they're onto. And they'll use those mm. for like bird hunting. So you like shoot down a bird or you're looking for, you know, they'll, they can help you find your kill, find your prey. So it's definitely something that even today it's the pet is still a lot of times actually useful like beyond like i want something warm and fuzzy to lay on my lap you know <laughs> yeah well so that was something i wanted to ask you about because i i guess i think a lot of this domestication of animals started with very clear utility to the humans and to the animals as well um that symbiotic relationship like the animals you know they get the food the scraps from the humans and the humans get the help from the dogs with hunting and warning of the threats um and the same thing with livestock too like maybe the livestock get care from the humans and the livestock help us till the land and whatnot with agriculture um but today i look at the pets we have and a lot of them don't have a clear purpose or functional utility and it seems like the only real utility they have for us is emotional and enjoyment based. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a little strange. Well, I mean, I if you want to think about it that way, like that's a it's maybe not exactly how I would think about it, but even even so, like part of I think that way of thinking about it, if you're going to, you have to also realize that at least you know socially, it's like a cultural, historical artifact of our past. Because some places actually don't mm. keep them, you know, like Americans especially, and you know, there's different places that have different degrees of like love, I guess you would say, a different level of like pet in the culture, and yeah, that probably yeah. has a lot to do with with a lot of different cultural factors, you know. And like in China, I think they eat dogs. Some um, places like actually eat them. So like in a place where that's been part of their past, there's probably a time in which that maybe was somewhere bordering a necessity for them that being part of their cultural past maybe they don't have the same kind of relationship with the house dog although they some do some don't you know whatever things change and it's you know it's still something there but i know i heard a story somebody told of going i don't know where they were i feel like maybe it was russia or somewhere somebody was basically saying you know talking about a trip they went somewhere and they wanted a dog like for protection or whatever 
like a pit bull or something something you know and the lady yeah was, she was said like to the guy that was like showing around like we're gonna get like a pet dog or something and the story was that the guy just like we want a what like a dog a dog like one of these dogs she's like yeah like a pet dog and he just like got a string and just like tied it around one of the dog's neck to just hand it to her he's like here you go <laughs> you know like well, okay whatever we don't get it he's like you could have one like they're here they're just running around like just dogs in the road you know in the street so it was kind of just oh, like it wasn't common in that area to keep them as pets. And this woman was like, I want a dog as a pet, like in my home. Like the guy was like, sure. You know, it wasn't like that crazy to him, but it was like, huh? Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Whereas if some foreigner was like walking around and you lived in an area with like a lot of dogs and a run around like a I don't know, trailer park or something. And someone was like language barrier, like a dog, like a pet dog, pet dog. You'd be like, oh, of course. Yeah, you want a pet dog? Like, of course you want a pet dog. You know, we'd be like, let's help you. Like, which one do you like? Which one's cute? You know what I mean? Like, there's a whole thing. We know all about pet dogs. Like, they're great. Like, have one. Get one. They're amazing. So, you know, there's... And I think there's something kind of valuable about... I mean, I like that kind of stuff. You, like, go to a different country or a different place, or you're, like, even just reading about history or cultures or whatever. There's little weird... Sometimes there's, like, little funny things that are still around. This is not a great example because I love using chopsticks, but chopsticks, you know? You're like, oh, these people use sticks to eat their food. And it's like, you wouldn't want to be like, well, look how much more efficient it is. You know, you scoop a ball of rice just as easy as you can pick it up with two sticks. I'm not like, come on, people, advance here. You need to start <laughs> using spoons. This is important. It's like, no, like, that's like a thing about Asian cultures that's kind of like neat, you know? Like, I, when I eat Asian food, I love to use chopsticks. I just feel like it's cool, you know? It's like part of their mm. culture. It's probably ancient, <laughs> to, you know, to some extent. And... I feel like maybe dogs are similar, like a similar kind of cultural artifact, even in the case that they become just a fluffy house pet for your kid. You know, I think there's actually value to that, to like raising an animal and experiencing. Right, like it's, maybe responsibility, the teaching. Yeah, I think it's also, they have a little bit shorter lifespan and it's an introduction to kind of the concept of death, hopefully before you have to experience mm. it in another way. Like that is a part of, I think, because you, you love your animals, you know, at least here we do. Hmm. And I don't even think if you think about it, you really don't even have to go back that far probably for a lot of people to be like, okay, so my daughter, I don't have a daughter, but if I did, like I give my daughter a dog and I get her dog because I had pet dogs growing up and I loved them. And my mom had pet dogs because my grandmother, she was a big dog person, like loved dogs, Hmm. especially boxers. And not too far back do we have to go to realize like these people just came off farms you know, like their dogs actually had utility. They probably herded sheep or cattle or whatever with their dogs or hunted or whatever survived mm, with their yeah. dogs. So it's it's not even that far in our past that like this kind of like little cultural vestige that's become very pampered hasn't always been. And in fact, when... Like my, not even that long ago, yeah. they weren't even like and that. And when my grandparents yeah. had dogs that were useful, they probably tied them to a stick on a string and left them outside their entire lives until they needed them. You know what I mean? So who's to say what? They were more useful then, but they're more cared for now. I mean, I don't know. It is it is interesting. And I think there are, of course, like the, mm-hmm. I, I wonder about like breeding pugs and stuff. But I, I've thought about this a lot because I had a course on animal ethics. I can't. So I had like an animal psychology and like a food ethics class. There's lots of like animal philosophy talk. And I've had a lot of experience with them. But first of all, like animals do not suffer like people do. Like people have the propensity and the ability to suffer like no other creature on this planet. Not that their lives are the hardest. I'm saying that like you can just have a headache or a toothache that is nearly incapacitating. Like you, I've had a toothache so bad 
that I was like blowing up my dentist's personal cell phone, like texting him, like, you have to help. I can't get up. I was like laying in bed, just rolling around like, oh my God. And I was like uh, realizing how come our grandparents would be like, just somebody knock this tooth out of my fucking head because it is going to kill me because people just suffer like that. And I think it's partially due to how capable of thought we are. So like we can think about our own pain. Right. That's what I was thinking. Also the thought of our mortality, like our fear of death. I think yeah. that's been pointed out. Like maybe animals don't. And we have a concept of time. So like if this doesn't go away, I'll, I won't be able to go on. How long will this last? When will it go away? We have this like constant mm. nagging of time where like if, if I have a really, really bad headache and I know that one of these pills will fix it and I have one of those pills and I'm certain that it will help. I'm probably not even going to, I may lay down, but I may not. I may just be like, you know what? I'm going to throw this in. I'm going to like get in my car. I'm going to go do what I need to do today. And I know that in five minutes I'll be fine. Like right now it's excruciating, but I know it's going to kick in any minute now. And that even just that is such a relief. Yeah. There's some way that we suffer that animals don't maybe. You want to make a dog suffer, like just ignore them. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of like a child in that way, especially for a dog. But I'm just saying like, I've seen a, a deer and I was on vacation. I was in a hotel and had a nice field behind us and I could see, you see all these deer. And I saw one deer and I was like, what is going on with this deer? It was grazing just like the rest of them, you know, walking around, eating the grass, you know, do, 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 do. But I noticed that its leg, its, its knee was bending the opposite fucking direction. Instead of going back, it was bending frontwards. Clearly the leg was broken in half. Oh my God. And this thing was- That makes me sick. Just imagine your leg is broken in half, but you just keep walking around picking apples. You know, I'm like, yeah. so there's some level of, I'm, and it's way beyond just pain tolerance. I, I don't even know what, I, I think my point is, I'm not sure dogs suffer as much as we think they do or any animal suffers as much as we imagine them to. Because we kind of anthropomorphized them in right. a lot of ways. So I think I was kind of thinking about pugs when I said I started that little story. You know, like the pug not being able to breathe. There is something there, you know, like constantly breeding an animal that wouldn't exist otherwise. And in a sense, I'm like, well, the genetics are in there. They could be selected for. They are being selected for. You could argue how natural that mm. selection is. But yeah, it's same... like it's epigenetic. It's like the code that expresses these traits is in the DNA, and right. we've just allowed the situation or changed the situation such that these things get expressed. And furthermore, does the pug give a shit? I have breathing problems. That's why I sound really nasally all the time because I've had like na- like facial surgeries and stuff to correct it. And the the reason I think it's miserable to me is because I have had times in my life where I can breathe. Being a human, I'm intelligent enough to have the ability to form concepts such as breathing. So I have a concept for breathing and I can have concept for all sorts of things and like what it would be like to breathe clearly. That breathing clearly is also a concept, an option that breathing in through, you know, in a constricted manner is, is all of these things and my ability to know them, to know about them, to think about them from like other perspectives, essentially that is really a, causes me to suffer a lot, a lot. Mm, yeah. I mean, I yeah. can't describe how much, I mean, I hate doctors and I was, I went under the surgery and I would do it again and it was miserable. I suffer so greatly for not being able to breathe. And I don't think a pug ever has a single, any, anything ever shoots through its brain approximating a concern about 
how well or not well it's breathing. I don't know if that mm. makes it. So, so you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Like, if if it's not suffering, but you know it could be better. Right. It could have an easier time breathing. Right. Less health problems, physical health problems, a longer lifespan. Yeah. I'm still willing to think in that that context as far as like the ethics of the situation. I don't know. I would, I think pugs are really cute in a perfect world. We ought to figure out how to, if it's possible, have pugs that still have a nice look and can breathe a little better. And yeah. I think actually, I think there are, I think, that, I think I just heard about a, like a new breed of pug that they might let into like the AKC or something with a longer mm. snout so that they can breathe. I don't know. I know that there's, and that's, you know, whatever interesting i just think about it a lot like how we're different like how and much like an animal am i how are we so different like i think that humans have a little animal in them but they have a human in them and i think animals have n no human in them you see what i'm saying like, i don't know what it is that fully that they're missing i think we can understand we feel a kinship to them and understand them on a certain level and can love them so much or how whatever because there's a little bit of us in there. We, why do we not, if we're a decent human, beat the shit out of the dog when it takes a dump on the rug or on your bed or wherever, some horrible place? It's because part of you knows, like, part of you gets it, you know? You're like, it's just a dog. It doesn't know any better. Sometimes, even if right. it does kind of know better, you know, like, one of my dog definitely knows better. If for some reason he goes, to, he has an accident, it's going to be an accident. He's going to, like, walk around, like, trying to keep his head down you know like oh god someone's gonna find out you know or he'll like steal something out of the trash he immediately runs back to his little bed and he'll like finish it off back there and then comes trotting out of the room and then if i go jack where were you and then i start walking back to the bedroom he just stands there in the kitchen and like puts his head down and watches me go back there and just waits for me <laughs> to come back and hold the wrapper in his face and go what is this what is this why did you do this <laughs> so you know anyways um i think there's something in us that uh appreciates them yeah i think it's like a as you were saying that it's like a difference of degree is what i was thinking because i think that goes back to the kind of way in which we treat them childlike too it's like as if we are more developed or something than they are like we are somewhere farther in a developmental uh, phase of some sort than the dogs are and i think you see that in the way we treat them uh, or just more capable at least more capable kind of because you know like a a, a, right, mo a yeah. mother monkey will like help the baby monkey that's not really good at doing monkey stuff quite yet you know get food and like teach it what to eat yeah yeah you know there's enough there that we sense it feel it see it are moved by it even non-tameable yeah. animals you know that'll like eat your face off you know you see a mama bear helping a baby bear you're like oh so wonderful <laughs> so wonderful even though that baby or that yeah, that baby bear could go up to, you know, kill a human. It's, yeah. Yeah, that mom hates you. She will eat you. Yeah. No, it's crazy. I mean, I think, uh, well, one thing that interests me is like the infant-like speech that we direct to dogs. So I looked up some things about this. Like, why do people talk to dogs the way they do? Like, they don't use a normal voice often. They use like this weird, exaggerated, like... You know, you're talking to the dog, like, oh, come here, you know, you want a back rub or whatever. And so one thing I found was, so women tend to do this more than men. 
Um, and then they also said it's very similar to infant directed speech. So when you're talking to babies and the characteristic of that speech is that it's slower and it's higher pitched and they, they say that the vowels are more emphasized and pronounced in infant-directed speech, and this is to make the vowels more clear to our understand, and this helps with speech acquisition, and so being higher-pitched and slower and the vowels being more uh, articulated helps infants acquire speech. So we do, and we do that, we're doing that with babies We do and it with dogs. dogs. Yeah, it's like we're trying to get the dog to like... Grow up. Learn human speech or something, <laughs> or like grow up. It's kind of weird. And I think, too, like it's really interesting when you hear dogs, they can almost talk like it's not like they're barking. It's like they're making noises that are like human speech. Um, and there's studies, too, that show that dogs can actually understand some human speech. Well, some will. The cats, yeah. cats, too, like the cats, um, the ca especially around here, the ones on the back porch, they don't meow at each other. It's pretty right, much silent, right. but as soon as I walk out there, it's like an orchestra because they're all talking to me and they know that <laughs> I respond to that, you know, usually by throwing empty cans at them or something like get away from me. But yeah, they're, that's a thing between humans and, and cats and humans and dogs. They do bark, but not really as much at each other as they will at people. Right, right. Well, yeah, and it's weird. And then I think too... Well, so this is another phenomenon that I find really interesting is like when say you're like a dog owner is walking out in a park with a dog or on the street and someone will walk by and they will get all, you know, up in that dog's business and use all this, you know, dog talk and be like, oh, who's a good boy? Who is a good boy? And it like almost completely ignore the dog owner. And it's like. It's such a weird thing to me to observe because it's like the person steps out of like their normal character and what society deems as like appropriate behavior to be like really weird for a second. I'm tell you, I'll tell you, I've seen ladies do it to other people's babies, especially old ladies. Yeah, it's kind of like, like that too. Let yeah. me see that baby right now. <laughs> Look at that baby. Let me grab his little toes. And you're like, lady, Jesus, what are you doing? Like That is not yours. <laughs> Isn't it weird? And then it's like the the dog owner just has to tolerate it. They're just like, oh, God, like this is going to be over. Or, the you know, the parent has to be like, oh, God, that woman will give my baby back in a second. But I don't know what's going on right now. Well, if the baby likes it, you know, it's hard to say because babies are annoying and they cry and stuff. But like if somebody does that to your dog as you're walking and the dog is just like so happy to like be talking to somebody, you know, you're like, yeah. oh, how nice for my dog talking to this person. <laughs> Yay, it's good times. You know. It's uh yeah, and I and I'll, I'll say this too, I was like, just on the baby talk thing for a second because I was thinking like I think it's natural to talk to clearly because we do it to like babies so it's like kind of in us like in a way that we're kind of just like acting it out and so a lot of times you get like a puppy and it's like a baby dog and so you talk to it like a baby but you never it actually never learns any language wow. necessarily I mean it kind of it learns how to understand certain things but it doesn't actually learn how to speak you don't get to like transition with them because i think there's some research that mm. shows that the as the child's learning it's also kind of putting pressure you have to talk a little bit above a child's ability for it to learn yeah yeah i've heard that so in, in a sense the child's also eliciting that out of the parent as well so it's kind of like changing your baby talk so you now you didn't you weren't using all the tenses like past tense future tense and stuff like that maybe you start to like 
introduce that and you start to learn rules mm, yeah. and exceptions, you know, for ED. Your vocabulary yeah. expands. So I think that pressure is never put on you as like a pet owner. But there's also the fact that the puppies like a baby too, in a lot of ways. You got to feed it, you got to take it out, you got to do the, you know, and it, it does, it gets a little better if you're a good parent owner. But as it gets older, like a lot of, you still kind of have to do a lot of the same stuff. Like it's not as bad. There's not as many like mishaps or accidents. Everyone can get into a routine. Right. But it's not going to like pick up its own shit. Yeah. Many of the ways that it was like a baby, it keeps, you know, so like it was actually a baby. Right, now it's like right. maybe not a baby. Now it's like theoretically older than you are, but it's still, you still have to feed it. You still have to like help it do all the things that make life good for everybody. Like, right. Which I think that's like the, the weird relationship you have with it. Like, cause I think people will complain about that sort of thing and be like, oh, this dog's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. It's annoying at times. But I think people also love that. It's like, this dog it relies on me. Like I take care of this dog, you know, this dog needs me. Yeah. We can get frustrated about it, especially Kim will get frustrated about it, but I don't get as frustrated about it so often because all I have to do is think of the alternative and it'd be like not having all of this like life around. And I just, just something about it that I kind of like, I don't know how I'd feel about having like 10 kids around. Cause I think they're a little bit more demanding <laughs> but you know a dog is like in your face a lot you know yeah and cats like as soon as you want to, want to do something that's when they come and bother you and like, wah, 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 you know just like oh my god leave me alone but at the same time i'm like i kind of just love the hustle and bustle and it kind of makes me i don't do a great job at it but like it makes me kind of order myself a little bit I remember when ryan was telling us someone that we both know he was like oh yeah when i had a kid i had to grow up a lot and then he gave a really simple example. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, of course you would, you know. And it, his example was like, you know, so if the kid's like coming over, like now I can't have a pizza box on the ground because like the kids can like walk all over the pizza box and like fall on the pizza box or like get into the grease. And Right. He meant he had to keep his house more in order, more neat, more organized. Yeah. So when the, when the animals are frustrating yeah. me, because usually what's also happening is my house is a, is a, is a wreck. You know, like, I don't mind if he's like running into the coffee mm. table, if there's not like 12 coffee cups on the table to like fall off and spill and slosh everywhere, you know? So the better I am, the better I feel. But I kind of like, you hear parents say this, like, uh, it's a handful, but I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, it's like, I kind of feel the same way. It's like, oh, it's a lot of work. I get to get my shit together. But like, I would be sad if they were gone. You know, like I like having like all the life and activity and like just different little things happening. There's something always kind of going on in a room or whatever. Some of it's not so great. Some of it's kind of neutral. Some of it's funny. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, like that they're a positive force on you and especially in the way that they instill order in your life or force you to be more yeah. orderly. I think they also force you into a role like, you know, like when Ryan was telling us that, like having kids, it's like, well, then you're forced into the role of being a parent and that becomes part of who you are now in a, in a way that it wasn't before. Like you weren't a parent before that, literally. And so now it's like you get to discover what it means to be a parent. And that's just part of who you are now. And it's like kind of the same with dogs, too, maybe it's like or any pet is like you're a pet owner now. And part of that is your relationship with this animal or with this child is that you are its caregiver. And so you have to be responsible and and not only you will face the consequences of your lack of responsibility, but this other thing, this child or this animal will will face those consequences too if things you know aren't going well or if they're going really well they'll they'll face the positive consequences yeah and there's like a 
they have a role, you know, to like, for example, the cats outside don't want to mm. be around me so much. They want my food, but my cat actually now in this, in this set of circumstances, a lot of times my cat wants to be around me. She wants me to like pick her up and hold her. And I can guarantee you that because she won't leave me alone until I do. And then when I do, she shuts up and she starts being happy and purring, you know? So on a certain level, it's like just given certain circumstances, it is what it is. You know, it kind of fits. Some things can't be domesticated and some things are actually harder to domesticate. A dog will almost domesticate itself. So will a cat. Like, is it, yeah, the story of cats, like they just kind of walked into people's homes or into the community. Well, they're great to point. have. I mean, if you have like a barn, like we have barn stuff chicken feed and stuff um sometimes i'll complain i'll be like don't feed the cats so much because we got to make sure they keep the mice population down because we might be inadvertently feeding you know the mice population out here the rat population through like chicken feed and stuff like that right there's definitely some utility to keeping down the vermin population maybe even snakes too in the olden days when those were more prevalent yeah, the, and, and, and there's there's you know there's some questions like it's not great to have a a male cat around unless he's neutered it's not great to have female dogs a little more difficult because they can like cause a mess uh, female cats even they just kind of get weird when they're in heat so if you can like stop that from happening that's nice so there are varying levels i guess of intervention you know then there's the question of like uh certain breeds that it's common to clip the ears or cut the tail off that kind of stuff purely cosmetic then there's the that thumb thing which i think is for like mating um a lot of times they'll cut that off because it's actually there's like a risk of it getting caught. Like it doesn't have a there's no control that they have over that. It's not you know it's just almost like hangs. It's like a a cloth that's like up higher on the leg. And if they remove that, sometimes that's a little safer. So yeah, you know there's uh there's varying levels I think of intervention that are worth questioning. You know what it makes me think about is designer babies that you're gonna like, say something like circumcision because we actually still do that but yeah uh, <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean i think we've kind of you know we've selected ourselves like people talk about how humans have domesticated themselves and we select for things that are desirable to the human community in our own social socially constructed lives our social institutions and whatnot and Maybe there's some evidence, too, that that's related to abundance, that because we had an abundance of resources or food, uh, that we didn't need to be so aggressive, like you were kind of talking about earlier with animals, and so it favored more uh, docile humans and ones who could have better relationships and weren't as violent. So anyway, so there's there's that argument. And I think, too, like people will sort of select their mates based on how they look and you know, maybe they even select their mates based on how they want their children to be. Like you marry you know, the tall person because you want to have a basketball player kid or something. Um, and so I think there's always sort of this this going on, too, in our own species. But then I think designer babies is like the extreme version of that. And so what do you think about that? I mean, is in a sense, is designer babies kind of seems to me that it kind of follows, falls under the uh, eugenics banner. And that, that that's eugenics, you know, being basically getting rid of the bad genes and promoting the good genes and this brings back memories of like right. world war the cultivation of desirable traits right. and, people. and this is like a philosophy yeah. of like margaret sanger however you want to think about her which is has galton hitler uh herbal you yeah. know like the nazis basically a lot of regular old folks kind of look askew at that kind of thing because uh there was a lot of um 
want to get rid of all these special kids, you know, that isn't good either. But uh, that becomes, you know, it's a little subjective. But yeah, so what do you think about this as far as the designer babies thing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the eugenics thing because, I mean, that's what I was thinking about earlier when you were talking too. It kind of reminded me of eugenics. Like when I was reading the uh, Darwin thing, it's sort of like, oh, man selects for, you know, the things that suit him. And that's kind of like what the idea was in eugenics was that we want to cultivate these desirable personality traits or traits in people and so designer babies i think you know in this same line of thinking as darwin i guess i worry if you know we're just like standing at a computer one day and like you know it's two people who want to have a baby and they're like you know the doctor says okay you know what traits would you like your baby to have and there's a long laundry list and you spend hours you know selecting all the traits and whatnot i just wonder if we would be good trait selectors because I look at the dogs like earlier and I don't I don't think we've selected things always that are good for the dog's own well-being and health and longevity and flourishing and I I doubt that we will be really good at selecting the things that are good for the person maybe those those um, animals though the one thing to keep in mind is that the dogs are this is not this is an argument that you'll hear in other realms as well and there are arguments against it but you have to realize that the dog is fully domesticated so regarding it, flourishing of let's say pugs well it is the best thing for their flourishing because they wouldn't exist otherwise there would be no pugs mm. you know because there would actually not be any breed of dog most likely or like these are the traits that humans want and that's how they flourish as a domesticated animal Right. Yeah. Hmm. So there's, and so people, that's a, another argument that people like to make for and against livestock, for example, like food, like animals raised to be killed. And it's like, oh, they're, it's not good for the flourishing of the species, yada, yada, yada. It's like, well, they uh, wouldn't exist. Yeah. Not saying it's a good argument. I'm just saying it's, it goes along the lines of thinking about, well, let's like, like, is this best for the dog? Is it going to cause, you know, is it, you start thinking about fitness and flourishing and things like that. And you go, well, I mean, yeah, the one thing to me is like you would get less variability, I think, in the species if all babies, you know, in the future are designer babies and they're all being picked by human preference, then maybe there's less, you know, accidents and diversity of genes and phenotypes. And maybe that makes the human population or species more vulnerable. Like if our situation changes, nature changes. There's less diversity and we're less able to adapt to those changes. Perfect example is the dog study where the dogs got fluffy ears. So we're breeding these coyotes for temperament, for a personality trait. And as we breed this personality trait into the dog, there are phenotypic, like physical changes to things that you were not selecting for at all. I'm not selecting for fluffy tails and floppy ears, but I'm getting them because I'm trying to breed for calm temperament. So it's like, you might uh, be like, I want my baby to have a fat ass, you know, so it'd be considered hot one day. Well, what if, if you, if you continuously yeah. select, now we probably do it differently through like gene editing, but I think you probably find similar pitfalls also called unintended consequences. So you start selecting for fat asses. What if that, mm. for whatever reason, breeds in a personality trait? Could, it does it, it does in coyotes you know or you know what i mean you yeah, could get yeah. weird personality traits you could get other genetic variability that makes it more susceptible especially as you as you go generation by generation because like so if you have 
a uh, one of those big German shepherds. Oftentimes, very carefully bred, very strong breed, very old, long lasting. You know, great dog for lots of purposes. And they so there's certain things about those dogs, especially those top line ones, that they want in them. But they're so uniform in in a sense that it's like we know that dog is going to have hip problems. Like there's just certain things that come along. Like it's always trade-offs, maybe like people who are really tall too tend to have problems. Right. Could be hip problems. What's the big deal? You know, maybe it's fine, but maybe it's not hip problems. You know what I mean? Like maybe something else occurs. And I think this is really great to pull back in to the Darwin quote, because in a sense, you could now take what Darwin's saying in the in this kind of context and be like, look, Darwin was kind of saying like that nature does better. He probably didn't even recognize the complexity like we're talking about right now because he was writing many, many years ago, but that like sickle cell anemia for the longest time, they were like, oh, that's only black people get that. And that is actually not a bad thought. It seems logical because like we said, we recognize that there can be unseen differences that are correlated with, with noticeable differences, but it really turned out that it's because of uh, people with sickle cell anemia you are highly resistant to contracting malaria. Oh, interesting. So there's some trade-off there. Assuming the story is true, nature found that on its own. So on certain things, you kind of want to say, yeah, I could see quote-unquote designer babies. But just even the moniker, though, designer babies, kind of sounds like it's you're turning it into an accessory. It sounds like you're like baby dolls, you know, like real life Like my Like my baby's Versace. Yeah, seems bad to me. But the other argument I was thinking is like, people are also part of nature. So it's like, well, when you let nature select, like what's the difference between letting people select versus nature select? Like people are part of nature. Yeah, there's, but like I was saying initially, or at some point, I personal belief here, think that there is something different about people that makes them, for lack of anything better than perhaps just a metaphor, that makes them in the image of God, you know? So there's something you could call it divine. There's no real good way to say it and not sound like you're just making shit up or being metaphysical. Well, there's so clearly something different about people. And I guess this isn't clear to, to some, to everybody. That's fine. But to me, it is clear. Yeah. Well, some people really push that. They challenge, they're like, how are we different? Here's what, here's my biggest thing you'll have to answer this for me to come on to the other side and have to answer it in a way that's satisfactory. And that is example I've already given the propensity to suffer. Whatever it is that's giving us that seems to be in the vein of whatever that exclusive human thing is, because there's a, there's, I, mm-hmm. okay, I'm trying not to get too into the weeds, but there are, there's research or theory, like for chickens, for example, they always say, because we have chickens, it's really hard to tell. Same with a cat. Like by the time your cat is expressing symptoms, it's pretty far down the road because they hide it so well. And they hide it so well, so they will say, for evolutionary purposes, you don't want to express vulnerability, you'll be picked off, you'll be kicked out of the pack, whatever, you'll get something, you know, not good to express the vulnerability. So there's like this evolutionary explanation for it. But to me, that doesn't count because it doesn't explain the disparity to me. People would love avoiding suffering to their own detriment. Certainly we would have selected for it at least as good as a cat. You know what I mean? Right. 
Mm. Well, maybe that's evidence of like, there's a light side of that coin too. Like as much as bad as suffering is, there's something on the other side of that coin that's worth selecting for it. A hundred percent. But people are too willing to go. People are too willing to be like, no, I animals can have a good time too. Look, cows play with balls. I'm like, I'm not saying cows can't have fun, whatever fun is. But I'm saying that if we're going to look at a scale here, there's like a tipping point or like maybe the halfway mark. I don't know seems to make all the difference mm. in the world. And I just have a feeling that it's not just an accumulation of evolutionary benefits that all of a sudden we have this ability. I'm not, and I'm not discounting the motivating force of suffering on our human activity in an evolutionary sense, if you want to call it that. That's just the easiest thing to point to is the suffering for me, but that there's many factors that are just like that, but we have such a hard time taking them away from like your dog, for example, you know, but there is, I still, as much as I love my dog or I love my animals, whatever, it's almost like I'm holding two thoughts in, the, in my head at the same time. I, I would do a lot for my dog beyond reason, but I also recognize that it's a dog and it's not having any, it's not having experience quite like mine. Maybe we, you know, domesticate animals, it's like our search to not be alone, like to have another species that understands us. It's like awake, like the lights are on, like ours are. And, and maybe, you know, to the human suffering point, like, maybe there's some suffering that we recognize. It's like, in order to get, you know, the lights to turn on, there's a lot of suffering that has to be induced. Um, and that's just part of it. And maybe that's what's going on with animals. Like we're trying to get the dogs to talk to us, you know, we're, we're breeding these really weird characteristics with them and it causes maybe them to suffer in some ways, maybe not, but maybe, yeah, at base, it's like we we're looking to be understood and to not be alone as a species. Um, yeah. And yeah. I have like an off the fence too, like a, a side to pick and like a way out for me, at least it's again, it's like a personal thing, but I personally like a more natural approach. It's kind of like how, this is maybe like an outdated view, but I'm just, just like coming to mind, like God and science, you know, like, why can't they both exist? You know, I, and I like that idea of holding on to something, uh, I'm going to call it nature. You know, I like a more natural approach because kind of like Darwin was saying, like, I sort of trust nature in a, in a, in a kind of way, you know, right now it's cold and everything in my yard is dead, but we have a big garden every year. And I can see into the woods. And by the time it's summer, I won't, I know I won't be able to. And the, everything in my yard will come back. I just kind of trust that. And I trust that it's good that it's cold right now, that that's doing something. It's all part of this mm -hmm. kind of uh, harmony, which oftentimes is a little brutal. But I think so we work with it. We're not like, you know, psychopath Bill Gates. We don't, okay, let's not block the sun out. <laughs> Okay, like chill, bro. That's super unnatural, dude. It's getting really far away from things. How how about this? Let's just make houses and live in them. Let's try to figure out a way to be that's just wise. You don't even have to call it natural. You look at the kind of wisdom of nature and just go with that. It brings me down lots of roads that are probably controversial. Like I'm not into like 52 vaccines. I'm not into designer babies you might keep going down that list and find things like what about 
birth control of certain kinds, yada, yada. And I, I would like to answer each of those questions from the same perspective that I'm answering this one, that let's try to stay as natural as possible. And by natural, I'm not trying to fall into like a naturalistic fallacy. I'm like actually trying to point out that I think there's something in nature that like is tied to us and that that's why we should do it because it actually is wise to do that. I'm just saying that's the perspective from which I look at it because I'm so into eliminating the suffering of humanity, of animals, of everything. Hmm. But I'm also want to continue to be a human. I would rather be in a lush, beautiful landscape than in a concrete building. These are, uh, these are also scientific facts. Like what kind of art people like the most favorite art is a landscape with a body of water and a far view. And they even have an evolutionary explanation for that. And I'm actually fine with the evolutionary explanation. But let's be parsimonious then with our sciences of everything, of health and ethics and all of that, and try to recognize that we're a little bit like everything in nature and we're a little bit not. And I like that approach personally. Because what if we couldn't do designer babies, but we just like picked our mates based on how we want our babies to be like i have blue eyes i want a blonde hair blue eye baby that's like stark white and, right right you know yay for me i'm sketchy but i'm like okay that's one approach how like i could do that and i was like who would i make a better baby with than who i'm with like I, I guess you could like try to figure that out but following in nature the natural progression of things people like feel love and stuff you know they want to like fall in love with somebody and there's probably an evolutionary explanation for that that's fine but again be parsimonious if we're going to appreciate these pieces of nature and what we're going to call evolution then let's listen to them and respect them and realize that just because you can make a baby in a test tube and live in a commune of a bunch of like furries that that's not best it's very unnatural and not like unnatural equals totally bad. Just there's a difference. I don't know why science and philosophy feels like it needs an explanation that's so tedious because there's such a gulf between those two views. And it's so difficult for me to actually prefer one over the other, the designer baby over the ba- the love baby. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, I'm like, you, <laughs> wait, you actually need a philosophically sound analytical argument for this. Like, I'm pretty sure we could do that. But it's actually a little scary to me that, that that's actually needed, I guess. I don't know. So anyway, that's my long-winded decision. <laughs> <laughs>